0: You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening hello lovely listeners and welcome back to the skylight books podcast i'm your host natalie and today we're so excited to welcome kelly barnhill to talk about her new novel when women were dragons kelly barnhill has written several middle grade novels including the girl who drank the moon a New York Times bestseller and winner of the 2017 John Newbery Medal. She is also the recipient of the World Fantasy Award and has been a finalist for the SFWA Andre Norton Nebula Award and the Penn America Literary Award. She lives in Minneapolis with her family. Thank you so much for being here, Kelly.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Did you want to start off by reading us
1: a little something? I will. I'm just going to read um, uh, the very first chapter is very short. So we're just going to start there and um, uh, let people guess what's going to happen next. <laughs> let me take a step. On. OK. <clears throat> chapter one. I was four years old when I first met a dragon. I never told my mother. I didn't think she'd understand. I was wrong, obviously, but I was wrong about a lot of things when it came to her. This is not particularly unusual. I think perhaps none of us ever know our mothers. Not really, or at least not until it's too late. The day I met the dragon was for me a day of loss set in a time of instability. My mother had been gone for over two months. My father, whose face had become as empty and expressionless as a hand in a glove, gave me no explanation. My Auntie Marla, who had come to stay with us to take care of me while my mother was gone, was similarly blank. Neither spoke of my mother's status or whereabouts. They did not tell me when she would be back. I was a child, you see and was therefore given no information, no frame of reference, no means by which I might ask a question. They told me to be a good girl. They hoped I would forget. There was back then a little old lady who lived across our alley. She had a garden and a beautiful shed and several chickens who lived in a small coop with a faux owl perched on the top. Sometimes when I wandered into her yard to say hello, she would give me a bundle of carrots. Or sometimes she would hand me an egg or a cookie or a basket full of strawberries. I loved her. She was, for me, the one sensible thing in a too often senseless world. She spoke with a heavy accent, Polish I learned much later, and called me her little Zabko, and as I was always jumping about like a, like a frog, and then would put me to work picking ground cherries, or early tomatoes, or nasturtiums, or, or sweet peas. And then, after a bit, she would take my hand and walk me home, admonishing my mother before her disappearance, or my aunt during those long months of mother missing. You must keep your eyes on this one, she'd scold, or one day she'll sprout wings and fly away. It was the very end of July when I first met the dragon on 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 an oppressively hot and humid afternoon. One of those days when thunderstorms lingered just at the edge of the sky, hunking, hulking in raggedy murmurs for hours, waiting to bring in their whirlwinds of opposites, making the light dark, howling at silences, and wringing all the wetness out of the air like a great soaked sponge. At this moment, though, the storm had not yet hit, and the whole world simply waited. The air was so damp and warm, it was nearly solid. My scalp sweated into my braids, and my smocked dress had become crinkled with grubby handprints. I remember the staccato barking of a neighborhood dog. I remember the far-off rumble of a revving engine. This was likely my aunt fixing yet another neighbor's car. My aunt was a mechanic and people said that she had magic hands. She could take any broken machine and make it live again. I remember the strange electric hum of cicadas calling to one another from tree to tree to tree. I remember the floating motes of dust and pollen hanging in the air, glinting in the slant of light. I remember a series of sounds from my neighbor's backyard. A man's roar, a woman's scream, a panicked gasping, a scrabble and a thud, and then a quiet, awestruck, oh. Each one of these memories is clear and keen as broken glass. I had no means of understanding them at the time, no way to find the link between distinct and seemingly unrelated moments and bits of information. It took me years to learn how to piece them together. I have stored these memories the way that any child stores a memory, a haphazard collection of sharp bright objects socked away in the darkest shelves and the dustiest corners of our mental filing systems. They stay there, those memories, rattling in the dark, scratching at the walls, disrupting our careful ordering of what we think is true, and injuring us when we forget how dangerous they are and we grasp too hard. I opened the back gate and walked into the old lady's yard as I had done a hundred times. The chickens were silent. The cicadas stopped humming and the birds stopped calling. The old lady was nowhere to be seen. Instead, There in the center of the yard, I saw a dragon sitting on its bottom midway between the tomatoes and the shed. It had an astonished expression on its enormous face. It stared at its hands. It stared at its feet. It craned its neck behind itself to get a load of its wings. I didn't cry out. I didn't run away. I didn't even move. I simply stood, rooted to the ground, and stared at the dragon. Finally, because I had come to, the, to see the little old lady, and I was nothing if not a very purposeful little girl, I cleared my throat and demanded to know where she was. The dragon looked at me, startled. It said nothing. It winked one eye, it held one finger to its lipless jaws, as though to say, shh. And then, without waiting for anything else, it curled its legs under its great body like a spring, tilted its face upward to the clouds overhead, unfurled its wings, and with a grunt pushed the earth away, leaping towards the sky. I watched it ascend higher and higher eventually arcing westward and disappearing over the wide crowns of the elm trees i didn't see the little old lady again after that no one mentioned her it was as though she never existed i tried to ask but I didn't have enough information to even form a question i looked to the adults in my life to provide reason or reassurance but found none only silence the little old lady was gone i saw something that i couldn't understand there was no space to mention it eventually Her house was boarded up and her yard grew over and her garden became a tangled mass. People walked by her house without giving it a second glance. I was four years old when I first saw a dragon. I was four years old when I first learned to be silent about dragons. Perhaps this is how we learn silence. An absence of words, an absence of context, a hole in the universe where the truth should be.
0: Thank you so much for starting us off there, and with uh, with Alex, who I don't think we we learned her name yet in that first chapter, but we, don't, uh, but we learned it. This, we
1: learned it in chapter two. <laughs> we
0: we learn. Uh, but this is Alex's story that she is telling us, and when i started reading this book i'm curious how i may have read it if i had not read the dedication page if i had happened to kind of skip past it for some reason um because seeing it i i feel like i read this story much differently um that it that it meant more and it had more meanings and more complexities to it and so for our listeners this book is dedicated to christine blasey ford whose testimony triggered this narrative as well as for kelly's children dragons and all um
1: yeah so could you
0: could you tell us
1: yeah So let's just go back to so it is true that her testimony did trigger this narrative and i will talk about that in a minute but um but one of the things that um uh that was true in the writing of the story as well as is true in my understanding of her testimony and what her testimony meant and and what it was that she was trying to say when I started this book, I started it in this place of total rage. And and in fact, its original title was Rage Story. I started this book, um, uh, sort of had this experience listening to um, uh, uh, Dr. Ford's testimony, who, by the way, let's just pause for a moment moment. Every day, I just hope that she's having a lovely day. I hope yeah. that she's having a lovely day. She tried her best. She tried her best, and um, she tried her best from to help to help people not make a terrible mistake. And just because it didn't work, didn't mean that it didn't matter. So I hope she's having a lovely day wherever she is. So that being said, I started this story. It was called Rage Story, and I started in a, in a place of total rage. I was listening to her testimony, uh, driving in my minivan with my fifth my daughter, who's now fifteen or was fifteen. She was she's now in college, and um, and and she was listening, and I was listening. You normally she turn she will make whatever playlist that she has on her Spotify, go onto the, the car. I still don't know how she does that. I know it's a thing that people do, but I don't really know how to work it. So whatever, it's fine. But she does that so that, you know, we don't talk because I don't know if you've met a teenager before. I love her so much. Anyway, and, but instead of doing that, um, she, I had the, I had the testimony going on NPR and, and she didn't, changed the channel, she listened to, and we were both listening. I watched her body while she was listening. She's sort of leaning forward um, and and kind of at full attention. And I had this sort of jolting realization that I was her exact same age. I was also 15 when Anita Hill also uh sat in that same chair and also gave very similar testimony and also did her best to try to um, uh, get the united states senate to think again right and who also was not successful but her testimony still mattered too and i i just felt this sensation of total anger that here we were an exact generation later that 15 year old me and now my 15 year old child. And here we were facing the same goddamn thing. And that as a country, we had learned nothing. Um, and yeah, that was a rough day. So, I mean, the but the thing is, so I, I went home feeling just this anger in my bones. I just I felt hot. I felt like my 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 anger was and my rage was larger than my body. This was was my experience, and I went home and I thought I'm going to write a short story about a bunch of 1950s housewives who turn into dragons and eat their husbands and any other man who <laughs> wrongs them. And that's what I'm going to do right now. Ah! Right. <laughs> so mad. And so I sat down. I called it Rage Story. And I started writing the story, but here's the thing about rage. Rage is so interesting, mm-hmm. and and I think I think it is worth examining, particularly as women, because uh, you know women in this country and women, and so I think just generally in, um, uh, uh, I don't know how how prevalent this is true cross culturally, but certainly this is true in the culture that I was raised, uh, that um, we were raised to really distrust rage and to see it as unfeminine and to see it as um uh that's not how you get things done right um uh, uh, nobody likes an angry woman all of those things all those little messages that even if they're not said they're implied and you sort of internalize this and i had internalized this and, and was very much uh resistant to my own rage for much of my life and i probably raised my kids that way too um, without even realizing it right because that's that's how that's how culture transmits through the things that we don't notice that we're doing right and um and 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 how frustrating that is and how um and what a mistake that is because rage is we don't stay in rage right rage exists to transform uh, and it is a very powerful experience uh it um, it allows us to sort of burn the chaff away. It's a refiner's fire. Uh, and, and so when I thought that I was writing a, a book about rage or a story about rage, it was originally supposed to be a short story that got out of hand uh, by accident. And, uh, uh, but, but I realized very quickly that I wasn't actually writing about rage. I mean, rage was the medium and rage exists as a through line throughout the story, but really it's a story about memory and trauma and of course that is what the core of dr ford's testimony was as well this has nothing in a lot of ways this book has nothing to do with her it has nothing to do with her story it has nothing to do with any of that no. but her testimony was the catalyst that made this happen and um but that that what she was trying to teach us about how um how how memory works and how how trauma lives in the brain uh and how we have these um these memories of of uh, of pain or violence or degradation or um uh, or, or whatever all of these terrible memories that get shunted away but they get stuck right and they're disruptive and, and so that is what she was trying to show us in that testimony um, through really, I mean, and she was quite clear, but I don't think even I understood it at the time. I had to go back and read through it again uh, to really see what she was trying to say. So anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that but particularly in that first chapter, um, uh, I, I didn't even put that together until later that um, uh, that a lot of that first chapter was in, in an oblique way um, uh, uh, responding to how she taught us all about the hippocampus. <laughs> 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 well, she did. Uh, but also really, really, she taught America about um, how these memories persist and how they can disrupt a psyche over time and and how damaging they are to all of us really
0: and to like she was showing us at her age and in this story we see how that affects Alex from that time that she first sees a dragon and is introduced to the concept of silence and mm-hmm. and forgetting and what the the possibility of remembering offers. Um, so this, this story is so much about rage and anger, but the you can tell us a little bit about the, the idea of transformation, yeah. that anger that you talked about, the idea of transformation and what happens when we make space for that anger, how it can lead to so much joy. Yeah, um, we won't talk a lot about the dragons themselves because we'll leave that for for the readers, but <laughs> we can say is that these transformations that we see a handful of throughout this story are when they're described, they are, they are not painful, they are not like agonizing what is agonizing is these women and girls trying to hold back that change and transformation. And yeah. when they allow themselves to do so, they're like, Alex just sees this immense joy and passion on their faces and the ones she witnesses are the stories she hears about it. Um, and that was such a such a powerful choice to, to make that catalyst joy um, yeah. with a creature that we know to be
1: destructive yeah. too. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, think about change is that it's messy. Right. I mean, it's always messy and there's always fallout and and even positive change can have negative repercussions. And that's just what we have to that, that's what we have to accept. Right. Uh, and um, and so. So, yeah, I mean, what you. I'm, so I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, there's um, uh, 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 this sort of exploration of silence and like cultural silencing, and um, but but also um, uh, that that silence was a way to um, to really. Block out people's understanding of what that joy could be too, right? Um, and that, um, uh, and so therefore, this process of dragoning is through is seen through this um, this lens of first of all destruction and pain and loss, right? And all of those things are true um as well as you know femininity and being embarrassed by feminine femininity it has something to do with periods i think you know or whatever you know whatever it is that people think um and of course that turns out to be you know not entirely accurate either um but 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 because there's this sort of you know cloud of misunderstanding uh, and, and this inability for people to sort of move through that cloud of, of misunderstanding uh, to be able to get to where, those, where, the, where the actual truth lives, um, uh, I, it, it allows all kinds of um, uh, uh, um, uh, misconceptions to persist, right? And, and all of those misconceptions come at a cost. Uh, And it comes at a cost of, you know, lives and relationships, um, as well as um, uh, uh, allowing people to take up any kind of space that maybe they might want to take up too. So anyway.
0: And then uh, I want all of our our listeners to buckle up because for a second, I would like to talk about science. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about, let's talk about science for a second. Um, I... Loved the structure of this book with these little letters and scientific papers kind of peppered in throughout certain chapters. So my first question, and we we'll, we can get into the science of it, but my first question is, I would love to know uh, about the choice to make Dr. Gantz a man mm. uh, rather than a woman. Um, he is not like unlikable in any way. And also you don't realize that he is a man until much later. Um, that's true. Or, yeah, you don't.
1: Oh, wow. That's true. I did that by accident.
0: <laughs> there's, it is because let's see, it's Dr. H.N. Gantz. Yeah. Um, so there's just initials and you have no, as a reader, you don't really have an idea. I of... forgot that I did that. <laughs> yeah, you did it. And so I didn't, I don't think I gendered him either way as yeah. I was reading. But then when I did find out that he was a man, I was like, why, I'm like, I was a little distrustful. I was like, why does he care so much? Yeah. All the other men don't give a shit about any of this. Yeah. Why is he so, what is his end game? What is his right. angle? What right. does he want? Right. Um, so that that choice, which um, he sort of fits in with this, um, this group of characters of an older generation yeah. um, and he is extremely lovable and I and we'll we'll get to that in a minute but I was curious about that uh, that choice to sort of make the person most one of the people most interested in understanding and filling that gap of silence with information and hopefully truth um, Someone who was sort of an outside character in terms of gender.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, that's such an interesting question. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, the Gans bits were really fun for me to write um, because um, uh, because his his entire arc is um, uh, is is told in these like little kind of patchwork sort of ways, right? And so so it gives the reader a chance to sort of to see his changing understanding and his changing understanding through this place of, of, of curiosity and, and, and pure scientific joy. It's another kind of joy, right? And um, as well as um, uh, you know, somebody who is um, uh, a, a humble enough scientist to, um, uh, to be able to know that which he does not know um, and and to um, uh, and to be completely sort of like who 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 buys into the scientific process to that degree right um i think i think that that's that that is the necessary sort of personality type, trait that sometimes not everybody gets. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, um, that everything that I find out might be like undone by later research. And that's how research works. And that's why we do this. We're all laboring in this field. We're only trying to find our one tiny piece of the elephant. Um, and we're, I'm not going to be able to understand what the elephant looks like. Right. And, and so, um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I didn't really make a conscious choice to make him male he just was um but in a lot of ways he um uh and um uh there's a librarian i was always a librarian <laughs> um, uh, god bless librarians oh man i just feel like all conversations need to be 90 percent loving up on librarians um and but um but he and um uh, mrs kaczynska um uh, they really are are kind, they kind of occupy um uh, uh, sort of um uh, they they are they they're kind of they're kind of twins in a way mm-hmm. in that um they're doing the same work but it's happening in different spheres right um, yeah uh, you know both of them are um, uh, are fully committed to this idea of um, scientific inquiry and scientific research in the face of blacklisting and silencing and um, uh, and you know the destruction of careers all this stuff that was happening um, and finding different ways of doing it whereas um, uh, where, whereas you know, Mrs. Kaczynska is much, much more on the ground. She's like she's she is a doer. <laughs> You know, she's the one who like gets the, research, the the research dollars to the people who need to. She's the one who's like protecting people. She's like moving all kinds of stuff behind the scenes in all kinds of ways that you is hinted at in the book, but we don't actually always see because like yeah. her her story is way bigger than what's in this book, right? Yeah. Um. And whereas, and which is true, of Doctor Gantz too. Uh. Whereas, Doctor Gantz, um, is in a um, uh, he. His his story and his arc is purely um, in that realm of scientific curiosity and scientific work. He is somebody who is completely married to his work to the you know to the point where he's you know not super engaged with other stuff and gets himself <laughs> in trouble too. Um, and and honestly, I mean. There, there's, there is a lot of my, my own um, uh, grandfather in him as well, who was also a scientist and, a, um, uh, uh, and, um, uh, and, and also a um, sort of a, a pure research kind of a person. Um, uh, he was the head of psychiatry at um, St. Mary's ha- Hospital and was like really um, uh, pushing a lot of sort of understanding of, of the brain and mind and all this stuff um, for his entire life and um and that sort of you know um uh that that sense of you know pure curiosity and and joy in learning um i uh, that's where a lot of that comes from so I, I didn't have to do a lot in terms of making like specific choices uh when it came to dr gantz like his just his work just kind of showed up i was like okay yeah. well all that done thank you sir <laughs>
0: Well, and I just, while you were saying that I, and you mentioned Ms. Gazinska, our our beloved librarian, I thought of a a fun parallel, which is sort of that he, Dr. Gantz is, anytime he's asked a question or people are asking him about dragons or his research or anything, a lot of the times his answer is either that he doesn't know or there's not enough information and we don't know. Um, But then at the same time, anytime anyone says anything, Uh, to Alex usually, she says, how did Miss Gazinska know that she knows, she knows everything. Um, So the two of them, while you were answering that question, I was thinking about that parallel between the two of them, how it's very interesting that Mm -hmm. they, they are, they are working towards a similar goal and they're working together in kind of two different spheres. Um, And there is a lot that she does not know. However, she knows a hell of a lot. <laughs> she knows a hell of a lot. She's got, she's got like hands in a bunch of different places and she's, she's got eyes all over the place and she knows yeah. when a lot of things are happening. Um yeah. She shows and then, up
1: right when the cops show up. Like she, just, yep, she, she knows.
0: Yeah, she shows up at Alex's apartment without Alex having ever known anything.
1: Yeah, she's um, like, what? I'm a librarian. Ooh. Yeah, I know stuff. <laughs> yeah, she was also really fun to write. God, she was fun to write. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, and... And so, I mean, what was also particularly fun about writing her is that, and again, she has, she has, you know, there's more to the story than what you see because we're all, we're only seeing this through Alex's point of view. Um, yeah. we see some bits from um, uh, uh, from uh, from Dr. Gantz's point of view, but we only see bits and pieces, you know. Uh, and so it's really up to the reader to fill in those gaps and and connect the dots, right? Um, and same is true with with um, with Mrs. Gizinska too but what's so interesting and she tells this to to Alex that um you know she she sort of oc- has occupied many dis- disparate kinds of worlds um mm-hmm. uh, and um uh, you know she was you know the you know genius daughter of immigrant farmers who like had a teacher who was able to like get her a spot to like help Mm -hmm. her like make her way into you know one of the finest universities in america and you know where she and she she ends up like you know Having access to this um, um, this massive fortune, and instead of like choosing that kind of life, because it's like, yeah, no, no, thank you to all of you, (laughs) you know, she returns to you know the 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 town that was you know very close to the farm that she grew up. She returns to that place, um, and um, and just manages to um, uh, to she's a, an extremely pragmatic person right um uh, she's like oh this needs to happen well then let's make that happen oh these people need to be together let's make that happen oh uh, i need to know all of these things let's make sure i know all of those things like that's yeah. just her personality and how she sort of approaches the world and um and does that does it in an extremely no nonsense um uh, and oh it's okay it's, all, it's already done it's <laughs> already <Sort of> like <laughs> That's, that's just how she, how she does. And, um, and so, and, and, you know, God bless her uh, for being there. She, um, uh, uh, she also um, is one of those people that doesn't really suffer fools. Um, no, and so she absolutely
0: does not. At mm-hmm.
1: all. At all. So. <laughs> So, and so sometimes I was a little terrified of her, you know, because I've always, like, had this incredible soft spot in my heart for um, formidable women who terrify me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, I loved writing her, but I was like, oh, yeah, I, I would like you quaking if you were here. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: And then I want to, I want to talk about Beatrice. Oh, sweet, sweet little Beatrice. We're obviously not, we're not going to, I just, uh, I just finished reading the book last night and got to like her final, (laughs) her final, her final little acts. And, um, she is a little firecracker. Yeah. She is so spunky and, um, I think we'll be able to, we're going to dance around some of the details of her life so that we don't spoil things for people. However, um, so Beatrice is Alex's cousin. um, Mm -hmm. And uh, through certain events, Beatrice is adopted into Alex's family and her mother tells her, this is your sister um and you're like she is your sister she has always been your sister Mm -hmm. and she will forever be your sister Mm -hmm. and and that that is it that is the that is the bottom line there are no questions Mm -hmm. we do not ask questions um and so throughout the no more questions no no room for questions and throughout the book um you you do this sort of very um like in the head sort of trauma response silence thing where Alex will say like Beatrice or my cousin Beatrice. And then right after that, she says, no, Beatrice is my sister. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where she kind of is reminding herself. Um, So I'd love to hear about the sort of the idea of Alex's voice and the way it comes along in certain places like that Um, and how she, and not just with that, but with a lot of memories of her mother and her father, too, um, and her childhood memories, the, the dichotomy between forgetting something and remembering it and then forgetting while remembering. Like, there's so yeah. many yeah. sort of layers to that idea of so, what the truth is.
1: Yeah. The brain is so interesting, isn't it? It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, i i read i read that book uh like a lot of other people the body keeps the score um uh which mm-hmm. is um a fantastic book and i think everybody should read it especially now actually now that we are yeah. all emerging from this national trauma right um uh, I, I was thinking about that a lot actually when i was um uh, when i was working on this book you know especially because you know i, I I, I started this book as a short story. It kind of got out of hand. It was this massive thing. I think I've written a novella and now I, I can't work on it. I have to put it aside. So I had to put it aside for a while uh, before I could sort of come back to it. And I came back to it. It was, you know, the pandemic was in full swing. Um, I don't really remember doing this. I don't remember really writing at all during the pandemic but I definitely did, because I wrote two books. Um, <laughs> and, but, um, but that was another trauma response, right? You know, everybody's home. Mm-hmm. Like my house is this like just this awash with feelings all the time, and uh, the emotional labor. I, I think mm-hmm. I think that that was the complaint that I heard from 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 women specifically. I mean, men too, but really, I heard this from women. Uh, just the emotional labor of the of the pandemic was so overwhelming, and it was for me too. Uh, and um, but um, but I was thinking when I was working on this book about. Um, my great grandfather, who died of the um, the Spanish flu, uh, in um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think he he died in the in the second big wave, um, or maybe it was the third big wave. I can't remember. But so it was not you know it was not right away. Um, it sort of like came through, and then it came through again worse. Um, and so my my great aunt Ruth uh, caught the flu and almost died. Um, and my great grandma caught it. She was pregnant with my grandmother at the time. Uh, and my great grandfather caught it and he died. Um, and, uh, um, I was actually for my great grandmother, it was probably her pregnancy that, um, that was protective for her because, uh, the. Better your immune system was, the worse off you would get. Um, they would have this mm-hmm. called a cytokine storm or whatever. Anyway, but my my dad did not know that his grandpa died in the Spanish flu in the you know the Great Flu pandemic until he was well into adulthood, right? And I just thought that was so fascinating because you know there was this sort of there, that was another national trauma that was another silencing right? Um, You know, where are the great pandemic flu novels? Like, where's the great pandemic flu pieces of art? Where are the pandemic flu um, uh, uh, memorials? There are two on earth. One's in Kansas and the other's in Indonesia, and that's it. Um, That's fascinating to me. It's like the world just moved on. Um, And so I was thinking about that, a lot when I was uh, when I was writing this book, and how, um, uh, and particularly too, because because this book is written in the form of the memoir. Um, I really wanted to use that form. I really wanted to explore that form and the and the ways in which memory will sort of like reshape and reform, um, uh, depending on you know when we're talking about it, right? You know, memory kind of loops around itself sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, and so even though. Um, Alex is telling the story from a place of, of safety and a long life, right? And, and from a place of great experience um, and, and, and a great sense of how the world has definitely changed. Uh, even still, she is still she still finds herself in 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 really inhabiting those memories, um getting caught in those um uh, those like li- little linguistic knots around that memory. um and even though she can see it and she can see herself doing it, she still does it again and again.. Yeah. And uh, you know, in, in psychology, we call that a schema. Um, uh, these sort of like go-to thoughts that um, uh, that the brain will sort of like hang on to, um, and, um, and 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 they they are actually sort of like they're kind of like grooves in a in a in a record. You can actually you know sort of see the the brain being like, okay, now we got to go over here. <laughs> you know and uh, it can, um, like there'll be very particular places that will just light up, oh, I think this and now I got to go here and now I have to think this thing. That might be a fine thought and it might be the imaging thought, I don't know. Uh, and so um, And so she has that too. and she has that sort of very typical uh, trauma response um, in how she processes those memories, despite the fact that she's you know telling the story when she's you know re- relatively healthy and whole and also honest about her life. Right? So anyway, the brain is funny. That's, that's really the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and
0: Beatrice is just like, there's the, um, the purity of younger children in her character who have like, who know what dragons are, have like heard people talk about them shushingly in corners or around hallways or behind closed doors. Um, and so she's drawing pictures of dragons and she is talking about dragons, dragons and pretending that she is going to fly away um, and become a dragon and she, and it is, it is just in in our world, it would just be make-believe, an imaginary play, but um, in this world where there have been dragons and there are dragons that are not talked about, she is just completely like shut down and told that it's not appropriate and it's and it's disrespectful and we don't talk about dragons um and we really see from her young age like what that suffocating does to her spirit and her joy um and how that that creates a certain rage in her um in these in these moments where she gets really upset with her sister alex and where she is and she's, she kind of like huffs and puffs around like a little kid does. And, yeah. um, and she's just like, she, she, you can tell she's like, I'm mad, but I'm sorry. I don't want you. I don't want you to think I'm mad, but like, you're making me mad. Um, mm-hmm. and even in her, in her frustration and anger and the Alex is really the, the main adult in her life. Um, yeah. and even Alex kind of shedding those things down for her and and suffocating that for her a little bit there's still an extreme kind of like openness and kindness um within their relationship where um Alex still doesn't she doesn't want to do that because she is sort of coming to understand what that suffocation from her parents did to her yeah. And she doesn't want to do the same thing to Beatrice. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. boy, it's, it's a dark moment in, I, I think, in anybody's life. It was just like, oh, shit, I'm my mom. <laughs> I yeah, just, I know. I just did that thing my mom did that, like, I even went to therapy about or whatever, right? You know, like, I mean, just, like, down the drain, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, it is the, um. like, that was, um. and, and. And even when Alex realizes she's doing it and realizes it's damaging, she still does it anyway. You know, like she yeah. can't seem to stop herself. And of course, that's the fear response, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that um, that you know, particularly you know, in in the face of 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 traumatic events, and and Alex has had a bunch, right? Um, has had just a bunch of like really crappy things that she has to sort of weather as she kind of keeps her eye on the ball of you know what she wants her future to be and what she wants herself to be and what matters to her. You know, she she remains fairly singular uh, in that way. Um, uh, uh, that I I need to have this life. I need to have Beatrice with me. We have to be together. And so I, I don't know what all these other things are, but like that those are the things that matter. And so what that means is that she's gonna make a lot of mistakes along the way. And she's going to overperform and overrespond to things that that feel like they are threats um, uh, to um, uh, to what she thinks like the safe path is, um, and um, uh, because there's um, uh, she just has a lot of fears of you know what could happen if um, if things kind of go south for them. Uh, and so, so yeah, the, um, but what was interesting, I mean, it was really interesting writing Beatrice, um, because she too was a very singular character, uh, and, um, and probably, you know, like this, this incredibly, um, self-assured child, like self-assured in that the world is going to be fine and it's me and Alex, that's good, like all of these things are good, so like, I'm pretty sure this is all going to be fine. You know, like that sort of is her um, point of view. Um, I, um, <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways, um, uh, I, I, I took, I did take some inspiration from one of my nieces uh, in all of mm-hmm. this. Um, uh, who so. I mean who's also the most self-assured child i've ever met in my whole life um <laughs> they had an experience and this was extremely scary and and like again one of those things that could have been really bad but ended up being fine uh a, a stranger came into their house uh after the kids had gone to bed and and had come and wandered into into her room um really scary situation I was somebody who was just not really in reality right and um mm-hmm. I, and I think was just profoundly confused and literally just wandered in but she wakes up in her bed she's like you know because there's, there's they have their bedtime and you can read your books but you have to be in bed she kind of looks up at this person who's in her room but you know she's so convinced of her own safety at all times uh but also is like This is unusual. Maybe I should check in with my parents." Um, And so she just trucks down the hall, goes into her parents' bedroom, and she's like, who's the guy? (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, what? Just like, you know, who's the guy? The guy in my room. And so my brother like goes and like realizes that the door is open and then goes downstairs and realizes the back door is open. And his neighbor's like, don't worry, I've already called 911. Because there had been a stranger in the house. But mm-hmm. like, and so as as scary as all of that was, and how it's sort of like, wow, this this really could have been a bad situation. But it wasn't. Everybody was fine, everybody's safe. But that child's response is so interesting. Isn't that interesting? You know, and like, (laughs) wow, here is a kid who feels completely safe in their world, but also is totally assured that like, there are processes still with this, right? And in a lot of ways, there there's a lot of um, parallels between that and um, and Beatrice. Who, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, like she probably should be falling apart. The woman that she knew as her mother has died. The the man that she knew as her father has like abandoned them. Wow. Like it's just yeah. like a teenager is in charge of her what you know and yet she has total faith in her situation that like this is gonna be fine and like i go to school i do my homework you know <laughs> we had spaghettios for dinner whatever you know that like um uh, uh, her ability to be like um and also like i played games with the kids behind the alley all that stuff you know is is part of how she organizes her world and thinks about her world and, um, and, so, and so, which is why she's so baffled that people are angry at her um, or upset, or she gets in trouble for doing this thing that feels super normal. Like I had a thought and I was playing with that thought, like what's wrong with that, you know? Um, uh, and um, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to her that she's drawing the thing that, you know, like burned down another kid's house or that like another kid like lost their parents of course she did too but she doesn't know or um uh uh, or whatever that she doesn't she she doesn't know to make that connection and partially because everything has been silenced she hasn't been allowed to ask questions so it's just like well i guess this is the world thanks okay
0: (laughs) well and there with the silencing there is that um because Alex is, well, there are multiple heroes in our story, but Alex is our, is our, our main character here. And the silences that she has sort of created in this world that she has made safe for herself in the same way that Beatrice understands her world to be safe. So everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. alex believes that everything will be okay as long as things stay the same right and there aren't and there is no change like major changes she can handle everything that she understands Mm -hmm. um and as she starts to grow up and sees more of the world a little bit and has some additional experiences she starts to realize how that worldview parallels the silencing
1: yeah that the
0: greater world has sort of inflicted upon everyone in regards right. to this dragoning and they're so it, it's so um it's such kind of like a roller coaster to follow her through mm-hmm. that it's that moment of clarity when you kind of understand oh like everything is gonna everything will be okay how even if it's not okay it will end up being okay um, yeah. but I have to give it the opportunity to Exist and right. to to come about and um and that that is a big part of her journey with joy as well in regards to how these women dragoned and uh like just trying to keep everything locked in so tight and so like not allowing the opportunity for anything outside of what she already knows to exist, which is what we get so angry about with so much of the world and all of the things happening. There is no room for other ideas or opinions because what we have is working. Right, so let's right. not.
1: That is a new idea. Therefore I must fear it.
0: <laughs> fear it. Exactly. And so it was, it was really, um, it it was like sad and heartbreaking to, to see Alex, you know, trying so hard. And I'm sure there'll be so many people that kind of um, really empathize or or recognize that feeling of trying so hard to just keep your head above water and so there is no room for this one little detour that might bring me joy because everything could possibly fall apart and that's that I won't be able to handle it
1: right right and that's the other thing too I mean um as a reader uh, you know, particularly because we're readers who are adults, like we know for darn sure that even though she has this idea that nothing can change and if I if I can just keep everything just like this, we're, we're going to be able to like make this work. But she's not going to be able to right like that's a fantasy she has no idea like what a fantasy i mean the fact that she's made it this far is a miracle it's insane it's the most
0: unbelievable part of this book and this book is about dragons right right.
1: (laughs) right i know that she's been able to make it this far and of course i mean she has been able to because like she's got you know like the one thing that her dad does is that he gives her adequate funding like she can she's, yeah. she's able to because they have they have a roof over the head they've got you know they've got food on the table they've got you know like they they have they, they can put clothes on their bodies they can do all of that right um and um and so i mean alex being a teenager you know she just doesn't have the context she doesn't have the understanding like there's absolutely no way that this is that this is sustainable there's no way that this is going to be able to happen on her own she's not going to be able to do it like things are going to fall apart and um and 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 what that will look like and what that will mean but she's not going to be able to have all of these things together at the same time you know um and um and so so yeah the uh, and so but the thing is that that And again, that's a trauma response that like, I can, I I have to live by these rules and it doesn't matter that the world is changing or that I'm changing, but like I have learned this one thing that keeps me safe. And so I'm just gonna do this thing again and again and again. Um, and 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 that and that's going to be it, right? Um, and so, which is why I mean, this is this is the way in which sort of like adverse childhood ev- um, events sort of disrupt us when we're adults, um, uh, because we learn this very particular sort of like manner of being and manner of thinking and like ordering of what is true um, that doesn't match up with what we learn as adults, and and that causes disruption and pain, you know. And uh, and so um, so Alex thinks that she is like trying to keep she, um, her you know trying to keep her family together her teeny tiny family of two together she's trying to think that she's like trying to keep them um uh uh you know because um, uh, she understands what education is and she understands what that can do for her and she knows that that is a path that she could be on that can lead her towards a life that she that that will be um, interesting for her. And joyful, and um, and a life of meaning, like that's what she wants, uh, and but um, uh, but she doesn't realize that uh, that her um, uh, silencing on the matter and and refusal to even consider other possibilities, that that in itself is putting her at risk, right, um, and is making is making her life harder. And and the thing is that, like, boy oh boy. Um, uh, we can certainly see people doing that. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? <laughs> absolutely. We have seen people do this in history. We can see them doing it now. It is, I think, a very common, um, uh, it is a very common sort of knee-jerk response that people have to um, change and new things and uh, enlargening, enlargening their idea of, what a life can look like, what a family can look like, what a society can look like, whatever. Uh, instead, it's just like, nope, no, nope, we have to.
0: <laughs> and then, so what do you, what do you hope that people do after they read this book? What do you want them to go out and do? What do you hope that they, they can only realize or come out with as much as they're willing to put into it while they're, they're taking the time to read it but what do you hope some people may go out and do after reading yeah, through this story
1: I mean obviously um uh, I I hope that like um I mean I, I certainly hope that everybody decides oh we should really fund libraries <laughs> <laughs> step one yes um, uh, libraries are really good and we should have all the books and stop with all the nonsense that's happening uh and but then also I think that um my, my hope is that um uh, I that we we interrogate our own memory and we interrogate our own idea of um what we think a life should be uh and that we interrogate like what we think our worst case scenario is right uh i used to do this with my kids actually when they were young um uh, that when they would really be afraid of a specific outcome like okay well then let's imagine that happening let's do it let's talk it through right now mm-hmm. let's imagine this worst case scenario happening like i'm i'm gonna fail this class oh okay well let's imagine you you've failed the class okay all right f. All right. So, you fail the class. Well, well, now what? You know, and like talk it through, you know, like do do I love you less? No, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, are you still Yes. Yeah. yeah, whatever. And but like which is generally, well, if that happens, like, okay, this is what we'll do. This is and and whatever like the sort of like even when they had like kind of outlandish fears. Oh, okay. Well, if that happened, you hmm, know, like if zombies did attack, well, I guess that this is what I would do, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And um uh, and so um but and and I think that what what has caused Alex so much distress is that she's so afraid of a very specific outcome and, and, and so afraid of being alone that she she stops imagining what her life is, first of all, what, what her life would look like alone yeah um because obviously we don't live with our sisters forever um and um but also um uh, you know if this should happen like how what what would happen to us well how would we how would we maintain our relationship how would we how would we find a new way to be in the world if she had done that then maybe she would not have been stuck in that place of distress for so long right and, and so i think that that is sort of like the main thing that i would want people to do is um uh, is to take a harder look at the thing that you think you're afraid of um, and ask yourself if it is necessary to be afraid um and to ask yourself why am i afraid of this thing and um and 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 to start to sort of like work towards um uh, some place of wholeness around that that's my hope
0: well, I cannot wait for everyone who grabs this book get, and gets the chance to read it to decide whether or not they would like to dragon and figure out when our, in this world, mass dragoning will occur. Right, right. I, I will be keeping my, my head towards the sky waiting for it. <laughs> um, thank you so much uh, to my guest today, Kelly Barnhill, for chatting with me about when women were dragons. Um, You can purchase copies at Skylight Books or online at skylightbooks.com. And thank you so much for chatting, Kelly.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.